Welcome back, everyone. It is episode two of season two of Cold Coffee, No Glue Sticks. And do you know what? I couldn't do a teaching podcast without actually talking to my old teachers, the people that took me through school and inspired me to go into teaching at the end of it. So with that said, I'd like to present you an episode with Mr. and Mrs. Smalley, my English teacher and my head of year. Um, Both of these people are wonderful, wonderful teachers and had a real impact on my life and my decisions as an adult. Um, So I really hope you enjoy this. It was a lot of fun to make and I hope it's a lot of fun to listen to. So lovely to see you and thank you for inviting us to do this as well. Oh, of course. Of course. I couldn't do a teaching podcast and not invite my old teachers. (laughs) 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 How are you guys? What's been happening? Um, Well, a lot in the last 16 years, I guess. Um, You know that neither of us are teaching anymore, don't you? I do. Yeah. Yeah. When did that finish? Well, James, you can tell, James. Yeah, um, I had a stroke. Um, I got uh, malformed cavernomas, like tumours on the brain, Yeah, and uh, which I've had from birth, and they decided to hemorrhage uh, when I was 48, and uh, that unfortunately had a devastating effect. Uh, put me in a wheelchair, took wow. my hearing, part of my eyesight, quite a few symptoms, uh, managed to recover, got back to work within a year. Um, the specialists thought it would be two years at least. So uh, I'm a stubborn so-and-so, so I got back in a year. You are, and I've then, always thought that. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple of years later, I retired due to uh, ill health. It was, it, was an, it was a very unforeseen and abrupt end to what had been a fantastic career but you know it is what it is so and I was teaching at the time but James needed 24-hour care so I also stopped teaching and then just pursued other avenues and didn't go back really so yeah yeah. wow so how long have you guys been out of the classroom now I've been out of the classroom for four years and I've been out for one one year wow one year that's it crazy isn't it do you miss it Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I admit we miss the interaction with the children yeah. and their achievements and the progress that they made. That that That's special and you can't replace that. Yeah. I, I miss the buzz of being around teenagers and yeah. I've always been such an advocate for teenagers and feel that I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here I feel like teenagers get a particularly bad press. Yeah. which is undeserved and I just feel I miss the thing I miss the most is being around the vibrancy of young people and yeah. and the excitement of their ambitions and their aspirations and and just being able the privilege of being able to witness and be a part of that development really yes yeah that's what I've always loved about teaching but of course you guys have got your own grown-up kids now and when I was at school they were very very tiny still Uh, they were well our eldest son is 25 now and and our daughter is 21 and he's a maths graduate and she's just graduated in animal biology and is going on to be a veterinary physiotherapist oh wow that's incredible and and can I just say that from knowing you as a young child well from 11 years old on it is of no surprise that you have been so successful because (laughs) It isn't, Katie, because you always had an abundance of enthusiasm and diligence and you were always going to be hugely successful in what you were doing. you to make me cry. No, it's true. It's true. It's very true. Yeah. Well, you would say well, the same, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Endorse oh. everything. And um, Louisa, I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it to you. Like, you're the reason I became a teacher. You you inspired oh, me bless to you. follow that. <laughs> And do my PGC and, you know, make that career choice. So thank you. You're a huge influence in my life. Well, you know, even from the thousands and thousands of children that I've taught for, even for one person to say that makes every night sitting up marking till 12 o'clock worthwhile. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you don't miss that, though, do you? 
I don't miss that. But the other thing that I was going to say, I've said earlier that it's an absolute privilege to be a part of a young person's life and to watch them grow and develop. But it's even much more rewarding when one of those people comes back to you all this time later and wants to reach out to you and you then have the second privilege of knowing where what happened to them after their their education when yeah. they left you and what they went on to do and to see how people's lives have panned out is just yeah. amazing. We, we love that, don't we, James? We do, we absolutely. Do love that. Lovely. Yeah. That is so lovely. Are you guys still um, around in the same area when you were both teaching? Ish. We moved um, two years ago um, following James's illness. We had yeah. quite, a, well, quite a big house, really, and we needed to change the house to make yeah. it a bit more manageable. Yeah. Yeah. So we we still live in Essex, but a little bit further out. So only still about half an hour from the school where we all oh, okay. are. Okay, yeah. So yeah. do you run into the families anytime? You run into the kids at all? Not really. Some uh, not where we live, but um, some we do sometimes. If we're going to a restaurant, something like that. I went into a restaurant the other day with two other fellow teachers, and yeah. um, the guy that was serving us said, "Oh, used to be my teacher to one oh. of my colleagues." And then, remembered both of them and I said do you remember me and they remember he remembered James much more yeah. and you know so yeah we do we do still bump into people and again he he was probably about 28 years of age now so he was able to tell what he's doing and what his sister's up to and all yeah. of that so yeah we do occasionally it's really wow. nice I'll tell you something else that over the years has always made me think of you and you probably won't even remember me talking to you about this but I remember in my in my English class you were telling me that you used to go to the gym with your dad and I'd just had, and I had just had a daughter and I remember thinking, oh, that's so lovely. I hope my daughter, when she's 14 or 15, would want to go to the gym with yeah. us and um, and she's grown up to be a real gym buff. And so we she? do go to the gym. <laughs> so when she used to go to the gym with James, I used to, I used to think of you, I used to think, oh, with this where Katie and her dad used to go to the gym <laughs> yeah and do you remember our head teacher at the time Mrs Bamford Mrs Bamford yes I do respect and courtesy were her oh that is amazing that you just said that well anyway that were well, they're our closest friends the Bamfords really and, yes and um and it's really funny that anytime we meet anybody from her era, yes. the first thing they say is courtesy and respect. And you just said it. That uh, They are the two words that have literally taken me through my entire life. That's yes. one of the main things that I remember from that school, from the first day in year seven, when she said that in our first assembly to her last assembly. Yeah. yeah. She'd well, always she's, say that. Yeah. She's, She's retired now, but she'll be really pleased to hear that we've spoken. Oh, to oh I'm so glad she's doing well. Yeah, tell her I said hi. I, I will. Well, yes. look, I, I mean, I could reminisce with you guys for hours and hours, but I have got a list of questions. Do you oh, want to get some questions? Yes, yes. Okay. Come on. All right. Well, I guess the first one that I kind of ask everyone is one of the main reasons that we go into teaching is to, you know, watch people progress and grow and develop those skills and get kind of those gold star moments so what were your what are some of your standout moments in the classroom what are some of your gold star moments when you're like yeah this is why I became a teacher shall I go first mm-hmm. well the, first. one of the things that comes to my mind immediately is that I used to um, when I was teaching English at Mayflower we after you left Mayflower became the dyslexia centre for Essex as well so children would be allocated places into the dyslexia centre from Essex County Council and they were generally children who had the severest forms of dyslexia and would find it very difficult to manage in the classroom so how it worked was that those children would come into us at year seven and they would not go into mainstream English until year nine Anyway, to cut a long story short, I had our four year nine dyslexic children in my English class. And one of my real standout moments was when they, with a lot of work and a lot of coercion and encouragement, each of them read a passage from Shakespeare and kind of read it as an actor. 
you know, using the script and everything else. And for me, it took a long time to get the children to be confident enough to do that. But that was definitely a massive stand-up moment for, for them as well, to see the pride in them to have been able to achieve not just reading, not just reading aloud in front of their peers, but reading Shakespeare. That is absolutely gorgeous. I love that. I mean, adults find it hard to read in iambic pentameter, so I can imagine yeah. how hard it yeah. would be for year nines. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love you, James. that. James, go ahead. Um, I mean, there's such a plethora of uh, moments, but I, I think I, I think the standout moment is when you um, enable a student to believe in themselves, to be successful. Now, for me, it was through physical education initially and then uh, obviously mathematics, but it doesn't really matter what the subject content is. It's just those children who don't have the light bulb moment necessarily, um, but they they have that that self-belief, which they've never had before, and that confidence to make mistakes and not be afraid to to challenge themselves, and then they begin to see that they can succeed, and then that 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 intrinsic motivation leads them into more successes, and and then they come out, you know, with positive outcomes. That I think is where you see your your role is to enable and facilitate that that kind of progress and and that achievement in in the young people. So. You know, it doesn't really matter what you're teaching. What matters is is how the children themselves perceive themselves. That's important. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the things that I will always remember uh, about you, James, actually, even though you weren't my teacher. And but were you ahead of year at some point? Ahead of ahead of yeah. year nine when I was year nine? Was it? Yeah. I think so, yes. Yeah. Something like that, right? I will always remember that you in your classrooms, in your assemblies or whichever class you happen to take at the time, there was such a culture of self-belief. You challenged people to challenge themselves and could be a little bit of a hard ass about it. Let's not tell lies. (laughs) (laughs) There was was always that journey of overcoming the challenges that you put in front of yourself as a student, as a learner. And you push people constantly to believe in themselves and do that. And I don't know whether that was an, a new thing, a new kind of way of thinking um, for the teaching profession when I was younger, but it seemed like um, it, it seemed different. You know, it seemed like something that not everybody was doing. How do you how did you kind of see that when you came into the staff at Mayflower? Well, for me, I, I kind of wanted to create a culture where people, whether that was staff or or the young children themselves, could actually um, have have the opportunity to believe um, and to see an alternative reality where so many of them seemed to have aspirations that were quite limited by their skill set or their perceived skill set and the opportunities that the structures themselves provided. So sometimes it was a case that you had to really force the the staff and the children to to see um, that there was alternatives, that there was other outcomes that they could succeed with. And, yes, sometimes, you know, you had to push them screaming and kicking um, into that reality (laughs) and other times it was a case of just giving them that opportunity so you know I I think it's true to say that I did have that um, philosophy uh, and you had to create a culture that um, that really believed that everything was possible uh, within constraints I mean you have to be realistic but at the same time you know, why, why can't the young people develop their own leadership? Um, leadership isn't just confined to professionals at a certain level. Leadership goes across all 
um, levels of the school from the children themselves. And I think if the children themselves become empowered um, to be leaders within their own right, that, that, that in itself will drive um, school development. Um, and I think that that was always at the forefront of what I truly believed. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think we as a society place a lot of value on teaching kind of leadership values within the curriculum as teachers. But sometimes it seems that um, policy creators, I'm going to use the word politicians because we're all thinking it, um, don't share the same beliefs, even though they're kind of pushing that, um, I guess, expectation of children to leave school and know exactly what they want to do, know exactly how they're going to change the world and go straight into those kind of leadership positions where they can be empowered, yet the curriculum as a document doesn't support that. I would say that you're spot on with that because if you look at here at least, if you look at everything that the government talks about, it's always about the product. It's never about the process. So even now with, you know, um, the baselines that every child's got to be at this level at this point and this level at this point. And if they don't achieve five um, grades, so-and-so, that the children themselves are perceived to be failing. But nobody's saying about the process that children go through. And, you know, you, you know as well as I do, you can have a very high-flying child who could come out with top grades in every single exam but actually, they've done that because they're highly intelligent children. They've got very supportive parents. They've got good teachers. Yes, but it hasn't really been much of a struggle for them. That's happens quite naturally. It's a natural process for them. The value added hasn't been, you know, great. You could have another child who achieves far less grade wise, but actually has had a much more enriched experience through their education. But that isn't seen. That's only only those in the profession know that. Yes. So I would totally agree with you that there's so much emphasis on the end, end product, i.e. exam grades, but not enough on the process. Yeah. But I'd, yeah. I'd add yeah. that, that it is a truism that um, target setting and benchmarking um, is part and parcel of the teaching profession because it has to be. Yeah. But yeah. Where, where they fall down is the emphasis um, Louise is absolutely right. The emphasis is too much on the outcomes rather than the journey of each individual. And, th and that's also a point is that um, the personalization gets lost in that process because you, you're looking at the herd mentality. You're looking mm -hmm. at groups and populations and how is that group going on? And then you kind of subdivide into boys and girls and and the lower sets and the upper sets, and, and you, you start to look at all of those particular subgroups, but yet you begin to then lose sight because it's almost a natural result, is that you lose sight of those individual people. And I think the politicians, although they normally have um, some individuals with teaching experience, it's often those who haven't been in the classroom for many, many years, and they forget and some people don't have that experience, the idiosyncratic nature of dealing with human beings and being with people on a day-to-day -day basis gives you that insight that the politicians mostly do not have. And that's why the, there's, a, there's a mismatch between what the um, policymakers are looking for and, and what necessarily the people at the chalk face are looking for. Um, and there's yeah. tension because you have to deliver the targets and you have to deliver the the results. Yeah. But at, at, at what cost is quite important, I think, and you have to reconcile that. And Katie, I would just add that in my years of experience, I've taught alongside some outstanding, fantastic teachers. And in my experience, those teachers who I would say are the best teachers are those who, who connect individually with the children, that they don't, they they know what they've got to do um, as a whole, but they see children as individual human beings with individual needs, and they're able to adjust what they do and 
cater for those children as individually as they possibly can. Those are the people that make the best teachers. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Do you think teachers as a as a professional group, do you think teachers um, understand people and understand interactions between people more than, say, a group of, I don't know, other professionals? Absolutely, I do. I really do. Because... Yeah. Because you're you're, te- you're teaching, you're interacting with hundreds, thousands of young people at, of different ages, and they're also at an age where they are experiencing complexities in their life, in their intellectual development, in their emotional development, their social development, their family lives, all of their varied experiences, the type of homes that they come from, the affluence or lack of it that they come from, everything like that. You're dealing with all of those things, but you're also... You're also working in um, what can be a highly stressful environment alongside other people within a department. You're you're helping people when they need it. People are helping you when when you need their help. And you're also dealing with the parents of all these children who can also be difficult at times for various reasons. They can be stressed. Um, And I just think you develop subliminally you develop a skill set that is unlike any other oh 100 percent, yeah but, but I, I i would just offer a slightly different perspective in that there's a huge need um for teaching development on the um human side so that the individuals themselves really have an opportunity to reflect upon their own personal interactions with their colleagues, with parents and with students. And unfortunately, um, there's a real real lack of development on that level where schools are hell-bent on delivering results. Mm -hmm. So I think then you lose the opportunity for, for... vibrant teachers who really always want to do a good job but they're constrained and conflicted by the external pressures and often the internal pressures within schools to deliver results and then they lose that interaction Uh, and Louise is absolutely right the best teachers are those who reach out to each individual child uh, and really understand the children's needs on a personal level uh, but unfortunately, I think for too many staff, they then get embroiled with the external forces and then they they lose that interaction and, and they are focused then just on delivering results. And along the way, they they lose that 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 really idiosyncratic nature of teaching, which for all of us we love. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then it's a case of convey about let's get the children through the the examinations and get them out on the end and I think that's where leadership in schools is so so important that there is investment on each individual member of staff because the leadership of a school can only be successful um, at the chalk face and it's those teachers who never really understand what leadership is they're they're the people who need to be invested in Uh, and like I said earlier Katie, it's also the the students themselves that they understand how they can learn um, to to really become leaders within their own right, and 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 that's when they begin to have that self belief and motivation. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with Louisa, but unfortunately, I think for so many, they get distracted, uh, and I can understand why. So you end up with pockets of teachers who really understand the importance of interactions and others who, who are just unfortunately constricted um, so that they don't deliver those kind of outcomes for the young people in that way. So, mm. you know, it depends on the schools. The, I think the most successful schools are those with a culture where, where that is really the emphasis about the personalisation and the leadership development within all um, stakeholders of an organization mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the um, commonplace yes 
Um, and unfortunately, the more teachers and the more principals I talk to um, through my work and through the podcast, it seems to, that that's becoming even more of a common situation. The ongoing fight against bureaucracy in education, as well as, unfortunately, sometimes a fight against the leadership level and what's happening in um, senior management and how that is being filtered down and those kind of values up here that don't necessarily fit with the values across the rest of the school. Um, actually, you raised an interesting point there, James, and I've I've only ever taught primary and early years. I've done a couple of sessions with year eight and nine, which was absolutely terrifying, and I never want to repeat <laughs> it. Um, but you guys have so much experience teaching high school, teaching secondary students. How much of an expectation is there from your students to be a certain way, a certain teacher, deliver a certain result while you're teaching throughout a project kind of thing? Do you, do you know what I mean? I think that I think that because of the transparency of expectation in the media, I think there is a high expectation from students of their teachers. Um, and I'm not saying that's wrong. There should be. Um, I think children these days are much more savvy, if I can say it like that, from when I was at school. You know, if um, just on a simple level, if if you gave in a piece of work and the teacher hadn't marked it, you just accepted the teacher hadn't marked it. Whereas nowadays, you know, I think that children, will, not all children, but some children would be more likely to say, well, you know, you said that would be marked and it isn't marked. And they, not that they think you're being lazy, but I don't think they necessarily understand that you might have, six sets of things to mark that one evening. Um, so that's a good thing, I think, that they have high expectations. What do you think, James? Uh, I think we've, as a teaching profession over the years, we've been very afraid of, of being perceived as giving power to the students. And power is often looked as a negative connotation, but yet... It's about empowering the students to have a voice. Um, and what schools have been very um, poor at over many years is that they've given a voice to the students, but they haven't listened. And I think um, the successful schools and when Mayflower was being really highly successful is that we actually listen to the students. Mm. And it's not about being entitled and, and being privileged um, and necessarily demanding unrealistic um, expectations from the staff. It's actually about sitting down with students uh, and, and being part of that, that collaboration of teaching and learning. I mean, learning, you know, as we all know, is not just one way. Um, there has to be reciprocation of that learning so that the teacher understands um, what needs to be done to facilitate greater learning, greater progress. So I, I think schools need to be certainly um, more trustworthy, bolder. I think they need to take more risks at sitting down with the students and not just the students who are articulate. Again, schools are often in dangerous positions where they choose the the often the most intellectual students to have that conversation with rather than the students perhaps um, often in the lower sets where their needs are not communicated to in the normal way. And I think you have to have in a school the opportunity to communicate with all children in a way where you're not afraid of the results. And yes, you know, children can be critical um, but it's that that critical interaction and collaboration which is going to have such fantastic outcomes on a school if the school is winning. And often, you know, the senior leadership team, you know, they want to um, portray this image of wanting to be listeners, um, but actually they don't want to be criticised. And, and that's a real negative I think on on school leadership is that you've got to take that criticism and then you've got to listen to people and at the same time you've got to respond and and be seen to be um, reacting to that to, to that input and feedback so 
You know, I, I, I just think we need to do more with the young people, not necessarily more with the parents. You know, the parents aren't with us 24-7 in the classrooms and at break and lunchtime. Um, and often we, we think the parents are the articulate ones. And yes, they can be. Um, but actually, the children are using Louise's word, are savvy. They kind of know what's going on. And if you mm. want to know what's going on, you speak to the students. And I think also if we just um, go back a little bit to the point you were making earlier about about leadership, you are teaching young people about decision making and taking responsibility. Well, you're not you're giving them the opportunity to do it. You're not teaching them it necessarily, but you're you're facilitating their development in those areas, which what like you were saying earlier, they are the life skills that they'll take on into their own chosen professions when they finish their education. So, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I love that. Um, I think it's a philosophy that a lot of a lot of teachers that are currently teaching that are proud of their um, profession and proud of their skills will share. And I yes. think a lot of those teachers that will have the happiest, most successful students as well. Mm. But also, can I add in, I would say that both James and I have experienced outside of the academic departments and have both worked in, in pastoral work as heads of year. James was head of upper school, as you know, and went on to be the assistant head teacher in charge of pastoral. Um, And I think those departments within schools are incredibly supportive and incredibly strong and are the backbone of successful teaching and learning because if you get the pastoral care right, you have well-behaved children, you have well-supported children and you have happy children that can learn in a in a supportive environment throughout the whole school and seek help when they need it. Working in pastoral can be very, very challenging. You're very often working with the children with the most difficulties and their families with the most difficulties. And it can be extremely difficult. But I might, in my experience, every pastoral team that I've worked in has all been fantastic at really supporting each other. So now both of you guys are kind of at the opposite end of your teaching career. What's something that you ended up doing in your classroom, adding to your practice by the end of your career that you didn't do at the start of your career? Or maybe it's the opposite, something that you started doing that you ended up just kicking out. Well, the the easiest thing that comes straight to mind is technology. The, the, advances, in, the advances in technology over 30 years has been phenomenal. Yeah. So so literally, when I started teaching, you had a, a blackboard and chalk, literally. Yeah. Well, you know, with the advances in technology, I would say the biggest change in teaching English was the quantity of what you could teach in one lesson. Because now we have, you will remember when I used to teach you that, the most fancy thing I had was an overhead projector. Yeah. Remember, we used to put a poem on and then all be annotating it up on the board and stuff yeah. like this. But now, if you think about the amount of time it took to write things up on the boards for students to maybe, you know, copy things down. Nowadays, it's so different. You have a PowerPoint presentation and it's all yeah. done beforehand yeah. and you can annotate it beforehand. So for me, the biggest change from the beginning to the end was the speed of learning, mm. how much you could deliver in one lesson compared to 30 years ago was just, it. well, it's unfathomable, really, the yeah. advances in it. Yeah. I don't want to go back to kind of outcomes versus processes, but as a teacher, did you see that make an impact on what students could achieve by the end of their learning journeys? Um. Yes. I would say yes, because you you can teach so much more in the time that you're given and therefore you can go into more depth. So I would I'm not saying it would make a difference to the grades that children would would um, achieve, but you could delve into things much, much more and you would have time to digress a little bit and maybe bring in something from a different lesson and I don't know how to explain it but if you're teaching a particular text for example you might have only had time to teach that text but you could start to cross cross reference to other texts because just because you could get through so much more in a lesson 
Yeah. Whereas 30 years ago, what you actually taught in one lesson was very limited to the time that you had and how yeah. long it actually took to get across that knowledge. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, it's so quick, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Love that. James, what do you reckon? I think over time, you get more experienced and... With my role development, uh, I was able to resist a lot of the external pressures of delivering solely results. And what I began to realize, what um, the word is affiliation. If you can get children to invest in what you're creating, your own um, culture within your classroom, and that belief within the children that's over time is what I really really began to focus on I wasn't so um so focused and distracted on delivering you know how to do long multiplication um you know there's many technological advances and pedagogical techniques that have come over many many years often just rebranding um what I what I felt was really, really important is getting the children to to really buy into what you were offering them. You were offering them a real opportunity to be part of something successful. And every child, however challenging, however desperate their situation may be at home, everybody wants to be part of something successful and they want to be valued. And for me, it was more important to develop the children's self-confidence and their self-belief and being part of my class, meeting and greeting them at at the door so that they got welcomed, which may have been the first time for that day that they actually had someone who smiled at them. Um, And to really feel that it was safe to make mistakes within the classroom, that it was safe to contribute um, to the learning dialogue that was going on and for them to begin to feel that they were actually achieving. So I, I think that was a, a lot to do with the fact of my position, that I was able to resist that external pressures. And, and for some staff, often new staff, newly qualified staff, that's really hard to do, and I probably would say impossible to do. So over the years, um, and it was 20-odd years at Mayflower, that I, I really felt that that was where I needed to invest and, and over time, I began to realize that actually that was, that was um, bearing more fruit in terms of success than it was on, you know, di- different pedagogical techniques that had just been rebranded over five years and it was yeah. called a different name. And, you know, how many parts of a lesson would you deliver? I mean, at the end of the day, I can smile now, but does it, does it matter? No, it doesn't. You know, whether or not you have a plenary at the beginning or you have a mini plenary, it doesn't matter. What matters is, are the children engaged? Do the children actually want to learn? And do the children feel that they can learn? And until you actually engage the students into being able to be open enough to learn, you can have a five-part, seven-part, two-part, three-part lesson. It doesn't matter they aren't going to really engage with you um, to to really understand what you're trying to deliver. So, you know, that's where I think the heart of teaching is. Yeah, I love that. And I'll tell you what, I could go the rest of my life without hearing the word plenary and be really (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can I just add something else in, which is slightly different, but another thing I think has really changed in teaching for the better, and it does impact children's ability to learn, is the whole awareness of children's well-being, uh, particularly safeguarding. So 30 years ago, child protection as it was then was something that other people dealt with. And you may have like your head teacher and your deputy head teachers were aware of child protection. And, you know, and that was it really. Whereas now we've come such a long way with the safeguarding of children that the heightened awareness has given children um, a safety that perhaps wasn't there 
30 years ago. So children now are safe in schools, not, not because schools were unsafe, but schools are safe because they have somewhere to go if they need help, is what I mean. And the um, the awareness of safeguarding from every single person in at school should be such that that is facilitated for children, that they know that they have help when they need it. And I think that in itself has created a different environment for children as well, which can only lead to greater success for them. Yeah, 100%. I mean, even over the last decade, um, speaking to teachers, being around teachers, the amount of focus that's put on classrooms being safe spaces and yes, making sure yes. teachers are safe people for children, that children have exactly. you know, their child safe champions around them, yes. that they know who to contact, that they know how to contact, how to call things out. Um, yeah. So much more awareness than even when I was a kid, when I was in Absolutely, school. yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you're right, it can only be for the better. That's lovely. Mm. Um, I guess just when you were talking then, James, about um, NQTs, um, you guys must have come across a few newly qualified teachers, early careers teachers across your career um, at Mayflower. What is, um, what's some advice that you could share with us now um, for new teachers, people going into maybe their first classroom, their first teaching job, um, that you could that could really kind of wise them up on the teaching profession as a whole. Well, that's a hard one, isn't it? Because teaching is so complex. Yeah. It, it's so multifaceted. But I, I I work or I did used to work with a lot of newly qualified staff and actually experienced staff who were having you know challenges within their own classroom, um, and and they really wanted to do a good job. But, but felt that they were not delivering. And, and they looked inside themselves, which I think is tremendously empowering. For, for some staff, um, they make the mistake of looking outward and they look at the, the um, students being at fault or they look at the parents being at fault and, the, and it's, it becomes the, the blame game. Whereas the... The staff that really look at themselves and think, well, what am I creating here as an environment? That could be the reason why this student is not engaging in a positive way. And I think for a newly qualified teacher, it's about establishing the right conditions for learning. Mm, yeah. it, it starts even before the child enters the classroom. Yeah. It's about your planning. But again, the, the focus used to be on um, the structure of your lesson, the content, the verbal cues, the questions, all of that used to take up uh, a disproportionate amount of your planning time. Well, yes, you do need to plan your lessons to a certain extent, but I think you need to spend quite a, uh, a large part on how are you going to get those children really turned on to your subject content, really ready to be engaged. You never know where the students are coming from. They could have had the most boring of lessons um, and they're coming into your lesson or they may have just come straight from home and had a blazing row with mum or dad or whatever is the circumstance. So you've got to capture those children and Mayflowers for an hour and really, really engage them. So for newly qualified teachers, they should look at how to get the children really engaged from the moment they step into the classroom um, to the moment they leave and how are you going to really, really enlighten them mm. and, and, and make them excited about coming back. Yeah. That, that I think, is where a lot of the newly qualified development training um, is really lacking. And certainly at Mayflower, that was lacking. You know, we used to teach them all about systems and structures um, and it was all about information giving yeah. what do you yeah. do if this happens and this is the system of behavior management but actually what we didn't do as much as we should have done is really skilled them to give them a real insight to, to what a successful environment actually looks like um, yeah. and team teaching and getting getting colleagues to go and view that what what is a great environment 
actually feels like as well, because a lot of them, they, they haven't had that experience. They don't know what it looks like. So that's what I would say. I would, um, for a newly qualified teacher, the biggest challenge for them is managing their stress levels. And so I would say that somebody has to understand how they do that. So there might be somebody who is very, very stressed if they haven't pinpointed every single thing they need to do that day. Therefore, their organisational skills need to be, you know, top draw so that they don't give themselves that kind of stress. So it's all about understanding how they're going to manage their working day, each class and all of that sort of stuff so that they manage their stress. Because the biggest problem, I think, is burning out for newly qualified teachers. That's what I would be saying to them. You've got a year to get through. It's going to go by really quickly, but you're going to be on your knees by June and you've got to go to the end of July. Um, And my biggest advice I'd give to anybody to be, you know, a good teacher is enthusiasm. You have to be enthusiastic. You might have a a raging headache. You might have not had a good evening the night before, but your kids just want you to be there and to be enthusiastic and getting them to love the subject and getting them to believe that you are in love with this subject too. And you want to impart all this fabulous knowledge to them. And I think if you're, if you're enthusiastic about what you're doing, you're nine-tenths of the way there, really. Yeah, 100%. Um, okay, so on to a bit of a lighter subject. Um, you guys are fantastic teachers. I know that. We all know that. Um, I wonder if you might take me through a couple of your most memorable classroom cock-ups, times where things <laughs> haven't gone quite as well. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, there would be quite a lot to choose from. (laughs) You can go first, James. (laughs) I'm trying to think. There's been so many. (laughs) They're the sort of things you tend to put out of your mind, Katie. (laughs) Yes, they are. But also, I'd say, coming back to the previous question, um, you know, don't be afraid to laugh at yourself. That's true, yeah. You know, there there has been cock-ups, many of them and faux pas in lessons and and mispronunciations or or you've made a mistake on a calculation and, and the child's actually told you the right answer. <laughs> yeah. But they're great opportunities for learning. Uh, and again, over time, I think you gain confidence and enough experience to, to not see that uh, as a negative, but to see that as a positive. Yeah, you're right, actually, because I can think of numerous occasions when, I, you know, I may have misspelt something on the board and a child would very politely put their hand up and say, Mrs Smalley, you've misspelt that word. And and I always used to say to the children, I'm an English teacher, but I really struggle with spelling. And I do. I honestly do. And I'd say to them. She does. I do, yeah. <laughs> I say, I'm, I'm not a good speller. I really struggle with spelling. But I used to say to the kids, all that means is I have to work doubly hard at it. And if yeah. I'm not sure, I have to check. I always have a dictionary. Well, now it's my iPhone. But I always have a dictionary <laughs> with me. And that your, your cock-up, so to speak, again, can be used as an opportunity to show that we're not perfect. We mustn't be afraid of what goes wrong. And the ability to laugh at yourself just endears yourself to your children because they will laugh along with you. Um, So there were too many to to remember, Katie, but many, many cock-ups, but always ended up in hilarity. You know, it was always really funny. It was never anything really terrible, yeah. (laughs) I do remember one thing I'll tell you, which is quite funny, if not, slightly, if not slightly rude. When I had a form class, I was pregnant with my first child, but obviously the kids didn't know that I was pregnant. So I was probably about 10 weeks pregnant, mm-hmm. had horrendous yeah. nausea all the time. And yeah. there was a boy yeah. who I'm not going to name, but there was a boy sitting just two rows back from where I was taking the register and he farted in the class. Oh. But the smell was so bad and I had such bad morning sickness that I was trying to take the register and I started retching. And in the end, and in the end, I had to run out of the classroom to be sick. And I was outside the classroom. It was in them demountables and I was being sick. And a really one of my really tough nut boys came outside and said, are you OK, Miss? Are you OK? And I'd stopped being sick. But where I'd been vomiting, all tears were rolling out of my eyes. Oh. And he- he ran back in the class 
and ran up to this boy and said, Miss is so upset that you smell at the glass and that she's crying. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't say, it's not that, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And it's made me feel sick. So they all thought that his passing of wind had been so offensive to me that I'd ended up in tears. (laughs) It's amazing the things that you remember. My son's 25 now, so this happened 26 years ago. I, the thing I love about that story is that you've got the dichotomy of teenage boys there, the complete and utter disgust of yeah. what they're like as teenagers, and then just how surprisingly lovely and caring and tender they can be <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you have to create that. You do. You have to it's create that. Louisa created that, and, and that's that affiliation that I talked about. Yeah. You know, her children, you know, wanted to be in her lesson, really cared for Louisa as a person rather as an English teacher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those those relationships, you know, last a lifetime, like like you talked about and why you're here. Absolutely. Here's my question to you. Right. When you were a child well, a young teenager, you, if my memory serves me correctly, you had a real beautiful fascination for vocabulary. Yeah. And there was a word and you always used to put it in. If ever you're writing a story, you used to get it in there. And I've never, every time I hear that word, I think of you. And you, and I said to you one time about it and you, you in your little dizzy way said, I love that word so much, miss. And every time I write, I try to include it in my writing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can you remember what that word was oh god I was such a nerd wasn't I I'm still such a nerd no. all right I've I've got a feeling it was one of two words it was either plethora or smorgasbord it was smorgasbord yeah look look I've got it right there look <laughs> oh god you used to include it in every story everything you, you love that word so much <laughs> And you know what you know what reminded me about it about five years ago, more than that actually, about six years ago, I had a child who loved the word discombobulated. I used to try and get it into every writing, and because he used to do that, it reminded me (laughs) that (laughs) it's funny that you knew which word it was, though. You'll be pleased. I still have a blanket fascination with vocabulary. My husband regular takes the piss out of me because I love reading so much. Like favorite on a Sunday afternoon, sit down with a glass of wine and go through a book. And he's like, "How do you do that?" He's got like sports on or something. Um, Yeah, Yeah. but it's yeah, that's still me. Yes, see, so there's lots of things about you that I haven't forgotten. Oh, no, out of thousands of kids, and you remember that word. That's insane. I do. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I'm going to finish on a question that I ask everyone that comes onto the podcast, and I guess we've kind of touched on some of the themes. I might be able to predict your answer. James, I've got a fair idea of what you're going to say, but imagine, if you will, that the um, position for Minister of Education has suddenly opened there's a national emergency. They can't find anyone to fill it. So they come to you guys and say, right, you guys have been voted the next ministers for education. What is the first thing you change about education in the UK? <laughs> I'd, I'd give all teachers a massive pay rise. <laughs> ah, yeah. That'd be my first thing. <laughs> a massive pay rise. Massive pay rise, yep. I, I, I would look to put teachers more at the heart of policy making. Um, I think they pay too much lip service to engaging with um, real teachers um, about how they can improve the environment, like more pay, uh, better conditions, more technology, all of those things. Um, And and I think I, I would be very much the person who would truly, truly deliver uh, on that promise. Um, And I would be speaking to unions and speaking to individual teachers uh, across all of the different schools, from trusts to the most challenging schools in the inner cities, 
the rural schools um, to, to really find out what are the challenges to those individual members of staff so we can look at, um, at some form of reduction of those pressures and stresses. And then secondly, uh, another thrust of me being minister, as long as I get a big salary, of course, um, would be to, to put that emphasis more on the process. You do need target setting. You, do, you need benchmarking, assessment lines. You need all of those. I know that. Um, but, I, but I think the emphasis within schools should be about schools having the, um, the autonomy to build um, environments and cultures where it is about um, the journey that the young people and the staff are on um, more so than the end results. And I think if you do that, I think you take a lot of the stresses away from teachers immediately. So those are my two thrusts. I've got two things. So Thanks. my first thing is that I agree with James that I I absolutely see a place for target setting and for the end results and the exam results. Of course I do. I'd never say not. But I have worried that for those children that do not have the academic ability to achieve those targets, despite how hard they work, um, they're being told from, from the outset that they're failures, that yes. if you don't yes. achieve these, at least five what would be the equivalent of grade C, as you would know it, Katie, it's all changed to numbers now, but if, if you imagine, if you don't achieve five grade Cs at GCSE and it doesn't include English and maths, you are not good enough. Yes. And I think... Yes. Whilst we strive, and that's absolutely 100% correct, we should strive, what about the percentage of children who will never achieve that because they do not have the academic ability to do it? They could work their socks off, they could be taught in the best possible way, but they just can't manage it. What kind of a message are we telling to those children? And there are quite a lot of them. The not, not we, as we, I don't mean teachers, I mean the government. The government yeah. setting boundaries and saying if you don't meet these targets you have not succeeded so the offset of that is you are a failure and I think that's incredibly wrong I've always hated that so I would change that and the other thing I would change is that teaching has become extremely arduous in terms of paperwork and I know lots of people lots of very very excellent teachers who have left the teaching profession and it's never because of the interaction with children it's always because of all the work that goes on in the planning and marking and all the preparation Um, and in my opinion of teaching English in the last four or five years of teaching English that paperwork and the way that we marked with the amount of time it took to mark every single piece of work with what went well, even better if my response is you had to write, you know, all of this stuff done. Honestly, it made no difference to the progress of the children. No difference whatsoever. But it took hours to mark these pieces of work and you could have just done it in one sentence and it would have had the same outcome. So I would change the way the government um, legislates and what the perception of those children that can't achieve those goals becomes. I would change that because I don't want any child to feel like they're a failure and they can't succeed. Success, success is measured in many different ways that we've just discussed. And secondly, I would change that arduous, never-ending, burdensome. Really burdensome. It's burdensome and it makes people not want to do the job. Yeah. And that's wrong. You know, it should be what goes on in the classroom. You can walk into a classroom and you can know within 10 minutes whether those children are engaged, they're happy, they're learning, and that teacher is loving their job. You know that. You can see that. They don't need to spend 15 minutes marking every book when they've got 32 children in the classroom. You can do the math yourself, you know. So, yeah, that's what I would change. (laughs) I love that. And I think there's a lot of teachers out there that would be dead along the same lines of exactly what you guys have said. Um, I think yeah. we're going to have a lot of a lot of nodding heads when the thousands of people that subscribe to this podcast listen to this episode, um, of course. Um, <laughs> but you guys, it was an absolute pleasure to come back and see you again and chat with you about uh, a shared career I, I suppose a shared passion yes. and I, I can hear the pride and the passion in your voice when you talk about Mayflower and your careers and 
um, that's really, really wonderful that even though you guys have been teaching so long, it's not it's not broken you down completely. No, we we talk about it a lot, Katie, and we yeah. both feel so strongly how lucky we've been to be in a profession that we've enjoyed, to have the privilege of working with so many wonderful young people and their families and to do a job that you love. I mean, there's not many people that, that have that experience and we have completely loved it, haven't we, James? We've completely 100%. loved it and, and still think it is the most beautiful, wonderful profession that someone can choose to go into. Well, um, it's yeah, like I said, it's been a real pleasure and to have the opportunity to reconnect with two people that have had such a profound effect on my own journey as a teacher and as an adult um, to be able to come back and just to say thank you is a real uh. Well, there you go. Absolute undeniable proof that I always was a word nerd and uh, I've carried on being a word nerd. <laughs> um, that episode is really close to my heart and I really hope that you guys enjoyed that. It was a real privilege for me to be able to talk to people that had such an influence on me um, and basically the reason that I became a teacher. Um, hop over on the Instagram at cold coffee, no glue sticks pod to find out more about what we're doing in this episode and who's going to be on next and drop me a message. Tell me what you love about the podcast and who you want to hear from next until next time. Thanks for listening and see you then.